The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. In one of, if not the most culturally important movies of the 20th century, and one that has been absolutely instrumental in my sanctification as an Italian-American, Michael and Fredo Corleone are having a heated discussion at the Corleone Beach House in Lake Tahoe, where we hear this dialogue. I've always taken care of you, Fredo. Taking care of me? You're my kid brother, and you take care of me? You ever think about that, huh? You ever once think about that? Send Fredo off to do this. Send Fredo off to do that. Let Fredo take care of some Mickey Mouse nightclub somewhere. Send Fredo to pick somebody up at the airport. I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's the way Pop wanted it. It ain't the way I wanted it. I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says, like dumb. I'm smart, and I want respect. Today's message is entitled, Leave the Birthright, Take the Cannoli. Genesis 25, 29 to 34. In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord called Abraham out of the land of the Chaldeans, telling him to get up to take his family, his relatives, and to go to the land of Canaan, a foreign land. After a brief time in Egypt, Abraham, then Abram, settled by the Oaks of Mamre in Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. In chapter 15, the Lord made a promise to Abraham that his offspring would be more numerous than the stars of heaven. And in verse 6, we see that Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. But Sarah, his wife, Sarai at the time, was barren. So as we know, Abraham listened to her advice, not waiting in faith on the Lord, and took Hagar, Sarai's Egyptian female servant, for himself, and he had a son, Ishmael, which chronologically, by all accounts, was his firstborn son. But wait, who do we know Abraham's only son to be? According to chapter 22, that's right, it's Isaac, the child of promise. In Genesis 17:21, we read, The Lord tells Abraham, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, who Sarah at age 91 shall bear to you this time next year. And as we've discovered these past two summers, the line of promise goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Last week, Caleb taught the message from Genesis 25, 1 to 28. And in verse 22, we learn that while Rebecca, Isaac's wife, was pregnant, she sought the Lord because, as the text says, the children struggled together within her. And because there was no ultrasound at the time, she didn't know that there were, in fact, two children inside of her, and they were fighting. The Lord says this to Rebecca in Genesis 25:23: Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And as Esau was born first, Jacob was grabbing at his heel, like wanting to pull him back to get out to be born first. Who is the older? 
Esau is the older. Who is the younger? Jacob is the younger. Who will serve whom? Just like Fredo Corleone and like his uncle Ishmael many, many years before him, Esau will be stepped over. The older will serve the younger and the second born will be the preeminent son. Now Esau, when he grew up, was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, an outdoorsman. He probably drove a pickup truck, had a subscription to Field and Stream, or better yet, guns and ammo. On the other hand, Jacob was a homebody. He dwelled indoors, in tents, spent most of his day in contemplation, probably on his phone. Esau was a hairy man. Jacob was a smooth-skinned man. Esau was rough and tough. Jacob was soft and thoughtful. Not thoughtful as in kind, but like thoughtful. He thought he was a man of his thoughts. These twins could not have been more different. Their parents, Isaac and Rebekah, knew this as they each had a favorite son. You know, parents of things we're not supposed to do or admit to doing. They each had their favorite. The text said that Isaac loved Esau because of his game, because of his hunting. On the other hand, Rebekah loved Jacob. I pose this question to you this morning, these questions to you. Who deserved their love more, Esau or Jacob? Who deserved God's love more, Esau or Jacob? It's no secret how this is going to turn out. Jacob's name will be changed to Israel by God. It will be changed to Israel. Esau, on the other hand, will be known as Edom. And the prophecy to Rebekah was that Esau would serve Jacob. The firstborn would serve the secondborn. It's also no secret that the Lord says this of Esau in Malachi 1, 2-3, where he says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I ask you the question again, who deserved God's love more, Esau or Jacob? Who deserved God's hate, Esau or Jacob? Please, in your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 25 as I will reread the text for this morning, Genesis 25, 29 to 34. Think about the questions that I post to you as I read the text this morning. God's word says this, verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name is called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. We come to you in a story that is very familiar to most of us in this room. We know how it starts. We know how it ends. We know the future of both nations. We know what it symbolizes. But Heavenly Father, I pray that you allow us to see it through the help of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would teach us things from the text. You would teach us what it means. You would teach us what its implications are. You would teach us the New Testament fulfillment and how we can take away things and live a life pleasing to you through your Son, Jesus Christ and by your grace. Once again, we come to you in the name of your son and we ask for your blessing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Who is the protagonist in the story? Is it Esau or is it Jacob? Esau comes in after laboring in the field, hunting or whatever, and he was exhausted. Now remember, Esau was a man of the field. He was used to working outdoors. He was hardened to the elements. It isn't like me during the spring festival at RGF where I'm ready to faint after setting up two chairs. I came in here for about an hour and rested. No, no. Esau was used to hard work and manual labor. If he said he was exhausted, you'd better believe he was spent. So he comes in and sees what Jacob was cooking. And in Hebrew, he says something along these lines. Let me have some of that red, that red, that red. It's like he being a red-headed, hairy man was infatuated with or mesmerized by this red stew. So one thing we know, he saw it and he craved it. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which in Hebrew means red. So how did Jacob answer? Sell me your birthright now. Not what he was expecting. Now, some commentators commend Jacob for thinking of eternal things, like thinking of the birthright and the blessing. But the fact of the matter is, as far as Jacob knew, this birthright would bring riches, yes, material blessings, yes, double portion, yes, power, authority, and prestige over future generations, but not some heavenly future spiritual position as a representative of God's elect or as a forefather of God's nation, as well as a foreshadowing of the personal salvation that would come through Jesus Christ. I mean, that's all true. That is what he was, and that is what he symbolized. But he didn't know that at the time. As Christians, that's what we see. We see future. We see blessing. We see God's promises. But Jacob, he was greedy. The book of Genesis seems to indicate Jacob didn't even have faith until he dreams of the ladder and makes a vow to the Lord in Genesis 20. Or maybe even in 35 where God changed his name to Israel and he met the Lord. As far as we know, just like at birth, Jacob was self-seeking, greedy, and power hungry. How did he answer Esau? Sell me your birthright now. Now, I'll admit Esau's response was a bit exaggerated. I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? That's the ancient Hebrew equivalent of saying, I'm starving to death, right? What is, I'm starving to death. I, in fact, I said that yesterday to Heidi. I'm starving to death. But he did say, in a sense, what good is this future inheritance to me? I want to be filled now. That's very important, brothers and sisters. Esau, in so doing, chose the immediate. He was hungry and he wanted to eat. Jacob responds, swear to me now. Swear to me now. He's not budging. He's not compromising. His eyes are fixed on that birthright and all the things that he knows will go with it. He tried to beat Esau out of the, Rebecca's womb, but he didn't. Now's his chance. Perhaps Rebecca shared the prophecy with him. Perhaps not. Perhaps he wished that one day he would have the pre-evidence. Either way, he had Esau right where he wanted him. So what does he say? Swear to me now. Now. I ask again, who is the protagonist in the story? Is it Esau or is it Jacob? Who are you rooting for? You know the outcome, but when you hear it fresh, who are you rooting for? Who's the one that seems unreasonable? Who's the good guy in the story? Verse 33, swear to me now. So he, Esau, swore to him and sold his birthright 
to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And what is the part of the story that we all remember? Before we even heard it again this morning, what's the part that we all remember? Thus Esau despised his birthright. He thought nothing of it, could care less about it. Who's the protagonist? Is it Esau or is it Jacob? Who deserved Isaac and Rebekah's love more? Was it Esau or was it Jacob? Who deserved God's love more? Was it Esau or was it Jacob? Who deserved the birthright? Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. It'll be on the screen as well, but please turn to Romans chapter 9. And let me say at the outset, I could spend years, years exploring Romans chapter 9's manifold truths, the implications. It's connecting salvific history from Abraham to Christ to us. Romans 9 goes behind the scenes, as it were, and tells us why Old Testament events happened the way they did. It's like a commentary. When you, get, when you buy a movie, there's the, the commentary. You can listen to the director and the writer. Romans 9 tells us why these things took place. Paul also tells us that the things that happened to, especially the nation of Israel, were recorded, and they happened for our benefit. So we would learn. So we would learn. So Paul in Romans 9 tells us exactly what Genesis 25 actually stands for, over and above the events we read in our story, both last week when Caleb preached in the first 20-something verses, and then this morning. I could spend years, but instead I'll just spend about three more hours up here, and we're going to go through Romans 9, 1 to 13. So please read silently as I read aloud and make a running commentary. Paul says, verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Who are his kinsmen according to the flesh? They're the Jews. They're the Israelites. They're the descendants of Jacob. Verse 4. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. What promises? Well, let's keep going. Verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The promises, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then through Jacob, Judah, David, and then Jesus Christ, according to the flesh. Salvation comes from the Jews. So why is Paul so upset? Paul is upset because the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and most importantly, Jacob, Israel, are not believing in the Messiah and therefore are being cut off. They're not receiving the promises. They're not receiving the blessings. They're not cashing in on the birthright. Paul goes on. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why would he say that? Because God promised these things to Israel, but at Paul's day, they're not receiving them. Here it is. 
Paul says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Remember, his offspring will be as numerous as the stars of heaven. Paul goes on, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Not through Ishmael, through Isaac. This means that it is not children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Does it sound familiar? That was Genesis 17, 21. But his son is not Ishmael, who was the firstborn according to the flesh. But no, it would be Isaac, the promised child, the child who would receive the birthright and the blessings, the line from Abraham, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac. And now Paul takes us to our text today. Verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they, Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad. Pause for a second. Who is the protagonist in the story? Who are you rooting for in Genesis 25? Who deserved Isaac and Rebekah's love more? Who deserved God's love more? Who deserved the birthright and the blessings? Neither. Neither. That is the point. Neither. Paul goes on. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, good or bad, but because of him, Who calls? That's the point. Because of God Almighty who chooses based on the counsel of his own will, not on the merit or not on the deserving of the chosen one. In this case, it's Jacob. Verse 12. She, Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. In the context of our story, of our text this morning, there is no good guy. There is no good guy. Esau was carnal and crude, right? He was hungry. He wanted to eat right now. Jacob was crafty and covetous. Sell me your birthright now. Esau was short-sighted and stupid. He despised his birthright. He couldn't care about it. He saw food and he wanted it now. Jacob was selfish And self-seeking, swear to me now, swear to me now. Why did the Lord choose Jacob? Why did he choose Jacob? Because he wanted to, period. Did Jacob deserve his election? No. Did Esau deserve it instead? Absolutely not. Now, again, if this weren't the inspired word of God, if this were just, again, some Hollywood movie or a book that we were reading, it seems like Esau was cheated. He he deserved his firstborn. He was hungry. You can't blame him, right? He was hungry. Jacob's response should have been, here, take some of mine. Share, right? That's what we teach our children. That's what we do together. You don't run to the front of the line during the barbecue. I mean, I do. But don't run to the front of the line. You share. You share. 
sell me your birthright now. Did Esau deserve it? No. Hebrews 12, 16 calls Esau unholy because he sold his birthright for a single meal. Did Esau deserve to be passed over? Yes. But did Jacob also deserve to be passed over? You better believe it. You better believe it. We've all heard it a thousand times, and I'm going to say it again. What should truly amaze us in Malachi 1 isn't Esau have I hated, but Jacob have I loved. If that doesn't amaze you, you have the wrong concept of who God is and of who we are as sinful human beings. How could God hate anyone? That's what we hear all the time. God should have hated Jacob and Esau. But the fact that he chose to love Jacob, and by extension, us, is amazing. And the connection that Paul makes in Romans 9, and that we must make this morning, is that we, those of us who are Christians, those of us who have been born again, those of us who have repented of our sins, put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of our souls, that we are no more deserving of God's election than crafty Jacob was. We're no more deserving of God's election than self-seeking, greedy Jacob was. And that we're also no less deserving of God's hatred as Esau was. Humility, brothers and sisters, humility and thankfulness, not pride and conceit that we figured out something that someone else couldn't, that we weren't so dull to say, oh, uh, uh, what's a birthright going to do for me now? I'm hungry right now. Not pride and conceit for having an eternal mindset. Humility and thankfulness that he would even love us in his beloved son. As for Jacob and Esau, I will not give much more away. I will leave it up to the men who will continue the summer series. I can't wait to hear where we go from here. But I will say that Jacob was chosen or blessed in spite of his sin, while Esau was passed over or cursed in accordance with his sin. See, Esau wasn't an innocent victim. After all, he did despise his birthright. He could care less about it. Then what did he do next? Well, if we read on in the text, the next couple of chapters, he married two Hittite women. Why? To make life bitter for his parents. After being cheated of Isaac's blessings, you know that's going to happen, by even being cheated by Jacob and his mother, he hated and planned to kill Jacob. He had a scheme to kill him. But in the meantime, what did he do? He took a third wife. This one from Canaan because he knew it would displease his parents further. Do you see what's taking place in Esau's life? See, Esau is living out the life of disobedience. He's fulfilling the deeds of the flesh, the deeds which mark out a person as an unbeliever, as an unregenerate person. Now, be clear. This didn't cause God to pass over him. That was God's perfect will according to election, according to Paul. But as he walked his sinful path, Esau continued to earn the curses he and his descendants, the Edomites, would eventually receive. But Jacob did almost the same thing. Although he was chosen and blessed by God, his sins continued to plague him throughout his earthly life. Things such as Laban's deceit when he had to wait those many years for his wife and he was given another, her sister first. He was tricked. The trickster was tricked. How about Rachel's trouble conceiving? His fear of Esau's retribution. The rape of his daughter. 
the selling of his son Joseph into slavery by his other sons. This is all collateral damage, but we can view it as chastisement in the life of a believer. Did he deserve God's election and love? No. His sins subsequent to his faith prove that point. So we have two men, Jacob and Esau. One elected, one passed over. Two sinful brothers, make no mistake. God's decision was not according to the flesh of who was born first, but according to God's promise, the prophecy to his mother, according to God's sovereign choice. You see, in Old Testament history, Israel and Edom were at odds with each other for generation and generation and generation. God's grace continually being poured out on Israel. They sin and are restored. They sin and are restored. They're chastised and restored. They're chastised and restored over and over and over again. In fact, in Malachi chapter 1, what we read earlier, where we read, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, the Lord was using Edom or the Edomites as an example to what? To shame Israel for their continued disobedience because they were the chosen people. He recounts his election and love for Israel in contrast to justice on Edom in Malachi 1, 3 to 4. He says this, I, the Lord, have laid waste his hill, Edom's hill country, and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Jacob, or Israel, symbolizes the elect of God in Christ. We knew that before we came in this morning. Jacob symbolizes the elect of God in Christ. Esau, or Edom, symbolizes the non-elect, the reprobate, those outside of Christ, people with whom the wrath of God will abide on forever and forever in hell. Genesis 25, 29 to 34 is an easy story to follow. There were only five verses. That's part of why I picked it this morning. Just five verses. Esau is tired and hungry. Jacob has food. Esau asks for some. Jacob demands his birthright. Esau trades it. Done. It's a true story. These are two real people, and their choices were the means by which God worked out his sovereign plan to love a people. Israel, by which, through which, the world will receive her Savior, Jesus Christ the Righteous. The son of David, the son of Judah, the son of Isaac, the son of son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. The plan to punish the wicked symbolized by Edom and how they were temp- temporarily punished as a nation without God's grace and law. This is a picture of eternal punishment, a people with whom the Lord is angry forever. So this morning I say to you, before we move on, We've been hearing a lot about birthrights and blessings and stews and the Corleone family this morning. But if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I I really need you to listen. I need you to listen that the fact that we're amazed by God's loving of Jacob is something that I want you to take home with you. Some of us, especially in this country, we think we deserve God's love. We deserve each other's love. We deserve uh, whatever we want. It's called the American dream. But in reality, we deserve one thing, justice from God. And justice isn't what you think it is. It's just punishment for our sins. You see, all people were created to serve God. 
But in Adam, our first father, we sinned. We sinned in him because he sinned by disobeying God. So all of humanity was thrust into darkness. Now, we're alive. We walk. We talk. We have babies. We have birthdays. We have celebrations. But spiritually, outside of Christ, we're dead. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. What we need is a Savior to save us from our sins. And what God did is he loved his people that he sent a Savior, Jesus Christ. In time, according to the flesh, through Jacob to save his people. So today, if you don't know Jesus, you can take a lot of information that we've been studying about the ancient world and the power of birthrights. But what's more importantly is that you realize that you're a sinner, just like Esau and just like Jacob. Now, we've spoken a lot about the elect this morning. Now, we don't know who they are, but we know their fruit. So don't think, am I the elect, am I not the elect? That's not the question you should be answering. You should be answering, are my sins covered? Are they paid for? And they're only paid for by one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We sang some beautiful songs this morning, all teaching better than I could teach from up here, about what Jesus accomplished on the cross on behalf of his people. He went to the cross being a sinful man, being a sinless man, and took on the sins of all his people. And so on the cross, God the Father punished him for the sins of his people. He's the only man that never committed any sins. But he was not only a man, he was also God, the second person of the Trinity, the creator of heaven and earth. You see, that is the only way he would be an acceptable sacrifice to the Father. So if the Lord is stirring your heart this morning, when we're done, don't leave. Please talk to one of us who have been on stage, and, and we'd love to share the gospel with you more. We can learn so much about Genesis 25 and interesting stories and movie analogies, but if we leave here today without our sins covered, we are guaranteed an eternity away from God's grace and under God's wrath, symbolized by the Edomites and Esau. Please don't despise the future blessings of the Lord. Come to Christ and be saved. So brothers and sisters, what can we learn from this story this morning? How can we apply it to our lives and our walks? Well, I have three points of application, each following the two brothers in the story and then Paul. So the first point of application, we're going to learn from Jacob. We're going to learn from Jacob. And as Jacob badly represented to us, do not attempt to force God's hand even in something that he has promised you. Jacob may have heard that the Lord told Rebekah that he was going to be served by his, younger bro- his older brother. Maybe he didn't. But something was on his mind, so much so that when Esau was most vulnerable, he didn't flinch. Some of your birth right now. He knew something was going on. When he knew Esau was in a position where he was vulnerable, he pounced on the chance. He offered his brother a terrible deal. He wanted to secure the birthright as quickly as he could. Yes, he would come to receive it, but with it came deception, dissension, division in his family. By taking the quick way, he ensured the hard way and the list of the collateral damage that his sins would cause him and his family, as his road would be one marked as one who struggles with God. So the application is don't try to force God's hand. Instead, wait on the Lord and learn to trust in his timing. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. When you have a decision to make, listen to wise counsel. Do not be impulsive in making life decisions. Do not try to force God's hand. Wait on the Lord. Secondly, we need to learn from Esau. 
do not value temporal things over eternal things. Do not put in a higher position of priority something that you can get right now that's sensate, that's temporal over things that God has promised in the future. Esau was a carnal man. He was acting on his desires. He was thinking with his stomach, so to speak. But we know from future texts that once the temptation wore off and he was satisfied, he thought better of it, didn't he? But by the time Isaac blessed Jacob, instead of Esau, it was too late. Hebrews 12:17 tells us that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he had found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. It was too late. Once he realized what he had done, it was too late. It's a sad story. Bless me, bless me also, my father. Now, we've said over and over again, we know Jacob wasn't godly or holy and taking advantage of Esau. We know that. However, he did know the value of the birthright, even if it was a temporal blessing. He knew the value, the future value. Once his father passed away, he would receive the inheritance, the riches, the wealth, the family name. Esau, however, wanted his fill now. His words to Jacob in the text betrayed his heart. What value is a birthright to me now? Application, look to the future promises of God and work toward that end. Do not despise what is stored up for you in Christ, saying with Esau, what good is that to me now? Seek first the kingdom of God and what the rest shall be added unto you, Matthew 6.33. And finally, brothers and sisters, we're going to learn from Paul this morning, from his amazing treatise in Romans chapter 9. First of all, Paul was in anguish over the eternal destiny of his fellow Jews, right? He was in anguish. He even said the unthinkable. I mean, it was, it was hyperbole. It, wasn't, it could never happen. He's like, I wish I was cut off and damned so that my brothers could be saved. That shows the depth of his love and his despair over the, 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 the unbelief of his fellow Jews. Paul admits also in Romans 9 of the importance of the Jews in salvific history. Paul explains how God's promises and covenant is still fulfilled and accomplished even though the majority of Israel is not being saved. Paul proposes that not all descendants of Israel belong to Israel. Think about that. Not from Abraham, right? Because Ishmael comes from Abraham, no. Not from Isaac, because who comes from Isaac? Esau comes from Isaac, but only through Jacob, the children of the promise. But here's the point. Even in Israel's descendants, descendants of Jacob, the child of promise, there are children of eternal promise elected out of the physical descendants of Jacob. Did you follow that? The nation of Israel are his chosen people. They're the elect of God. But inside that group, God was always electing the remnant. He was saving elect out of the physical elect, eternal elect out of the physical elect. It's a sort of sifting of the firstborn. You're taking the firstborn spiritual descendants of Jacob out of the physical descendants of Jacob. Jacob is no doubt a symbol of the elect in Christ, but a majority of his descendants are not of that elect. How ironic that the spiritually elect are chosen from the physically elect, and also, here's where it matters to us, the physically non-elect also produce the spiritually elect, which I say is most of us here. Those of us that aren't Jewish, we are not descendants of Jacob according to the flesh. 
but we are spiritually descendants of him. See, Ishmael was the firstborn in the flesh, but Isaac was the firstborn of the promise. Esau was the firstborn in the flesh, and Jacob was the firstborn of the promise. The nation of Israel was the firstborn according to the flesh. The elect in Christ are the firstborn according to the promise, including both Jew and Gentile, both making up spiritual Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. So learn from Paul. Number one, his agonizing concern for his family, for his kinsmen, and the preaching of Christ crucified to both Jew and Gentile. Number two, trusting in God's sovereign election unto salvation, those that are already his, allowing God the right to mercy whom he will and to harden whom he will. And number three, praising God for his self-glorification in the salvation of his elect people as well as the damnation of the, retro, of the reprobate. It's very important that we praise God for his election and his reprobation. His will is perfect. So we can be in agony and, and seek him with tears and preach till we lose our voice. But we need to praise him for his perfect will. Amen? And we give God glory always in all things. So in conclusion... Poor Fredo was passed over by the godfather himself, Vito Corleone, in order to make his younger brother, Michael, the new Don, the head of the Corleone family. The firstborn son was actually Sonny, or Santino, who was gunned down on the Long Beach Causeway. Think about that when we go to the uh, baptism on the beach. He was gunned down by the Barzini family. You see, they all thought it was the Tatalia family, but it was Barzini all along. Next in line was Fredo, but he was incompetent. So he was stepped over and assigned menial duties by the family. See, Esau was passed over too, but by the one true and living God, not some fictional mafia boss. But the analogy, if you've been following, breaks down even further. Why? Because in the movie, Fredo was stepped over because he was incompetent. There was no way he could run the family. See, there was a reason in Fredo himself for him to be overlooked. But Michael, on the other hand... Michael was better suited for the new title of Godfather. In a sense, there was something better in Al Pacino, in Michael, to make him more deserving of the position. And that's where the analogy breaks down. Michael, in a sense, deserved to be elected. Fredo was not competent. In the true story, in the true story, Jacob and Esau were equally sinful Neither one of them deserved to be chosen. They both deserved to be stepped over because God's choice was not based on anything they had done, anything within them, any more spiritual insight in Jacob or any worse in Esau. It was purely by God's sovereign choice in order that the purpose of election might stand. And so it does. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this message this morning. We thank you for your text. I personally thank you that Paul explains the text for me. He, he, he exegetes Genesis 25 for us. We thank you for having him pen those words and explain to us the eternal significance 
of the story between Jacob and Esau. And in the co- coming Sundays, we're going to hear more about them. And we're going to hear how it actually comes to unfold in, in, in Old Testament history and salvific history. We thank you that you've provided the truth for us in your holy word. And we thank you that those of us who know you, you have chosen, that you have elected. And we thank you that you chose to love us as you chose to love Jacob. Oh, Father, I pray that you would produce in us through your Holy Spirit a spirit of humility and of thankfulness and of unworthiness as as we go about our day, not thinking of how important we are or how we deserve this or we deserve that, but just in astonishment that you have chosen a people for yourself that includes us. Heavenly Father, I pray that again through your Holy Spirit you would would, uh, convict our hearts and encourage our hearts to live a life worthy of the calling And that's only by your grace. We know that. We pray that we may seek your son in all our days. And that as we go out and we see unsaved relatives or even strangers, that we would have a heart of compassion like Paul did. And that you would give us the words to speak to preach the gospel to them. We thank you again for this time. And we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.